Tonight, in our study of Isaiah, we're looking at chapter 62, chapter 62 of Isaiah. And the main theme of Isaiah 62 is centered around a metaphor of marriage. And it is a a picture of blessing and of salvation, of God's care and his love for the people of Israel. But it's it's pictured as presented in terms of a marriage between God and his people. And so it's a very beautiful imagery of bride and bridegroom. And it's a, a message that the Lord would join himself to Israel and that he would love Israel forever. And so in the first half of this chapter, in verses one through five, we see the marriage itself described. And so God presents this uh, relationship between himself and his chosen people as one of love, but also one of covenant commitment that uh, the Lord will honor. And so in verse one, we see the Lord's determination to honor this commitment and his pledge to his people. Earlier, Isaiah had described how God would judge his people, how he would judge their sin. But now he is describing how God is going to pledge to bring them home and be united to them in love and mercy. And so in verse one, Isaiah says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent for Jerusalem's sake. I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. Now, there's some disagreement in verse 1 as to who the I is referring to there. Some say that it's the Lord himself saying these things. Others say that it's the prophet Isaiah calling out that he will not be silent. I think given the Given the context, I think I, I tend toward this being Isaiah, the prophet, who is speaking, uh, because here he's referring to himself in the first person, but then very quickly he's going to refer to the Lord in the third person. And so I tend to think this is Isaiah crying out as the prophetic voice of God, God speaking through him. But he does talk about the vindication of the Lord's people. And the idea of vindication is... Israel had been beaten down, they had been oppressed, they had been triumphed over by their enemies, but now the Lord is going to rescue them, and he's going to bring them home, and he's going to vindicate not only them, but more importantly, his own name, and show that that he is indeed the powerful Lord over all creation, and he's the, he's the God, the one and only, the one who is mighty, the one who can rescue his people and bring them home. And then we see Zion's ornamentation. And here we get more of the imagery of the, a wedding ceremony of bride and groom. Zion's ornamentation. And so verse two says, the nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. The, the idea here is that if you can kind of picture a wedding ceremony, now, obviously our modern wedding ceremonies are not necessarily the same as the wedding customs of Israel, but even so we can still kind of get uh, an idea of what's being pictured here of when a bride walks down the aisle, all the eyes are on her, right? And so the Lord here is saying, when I bring you home, when I bless you, 
you're going to be a spectacle, if you will, for the nations in a good way of, of the Lord's blessing being showered on you. And, and other peoples are going to notice that you're going to be the center of attention. And, and also, I think here we see that imagery of giving a new name, uh, just like we still have the custom today of the bride taking the name of the husband and being wedded to her husband, becoming one family. The Lord says, when I join you to myself, I'm going to give you a new name and a name of, of salvation, of righteousness. In verse three, he says, you will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And so just the imagery of beautifying, uh, of making her glorious. And it, it reminds me of what Paul writes in Ephesians 5 of the church, where he talks about the Lord saving the church so that he might present her as a spotless bride without blemish. And so the Lord is doing for the church. He's saving her. He's rescuing her. He's joining her to himself in, in salvation. And he's beautifying her in holiness. And you see that same kind of imagery here with the Lord talking to Israel. And we've said this before, too, in looking at this restoration of the people from Babylon back to Judah, that the Lord's not just interested in moving a group of people from one, la- one place to the other. He wants to change them. He wants to transform them into a holy, righteous people, reflecting his covenant word. And then we see the wedding celebration itself in verses four and five. Verses four and five. He says, no longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you'll be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. The idea of Hephzibah is uh, probably a good translation of that would be something like my delight is in her. The idea of Beulah is to be married. And so instead of being deserted and desolate, which, which is exactly the picture of Jerusalem after its defeat, right? So after Jerusalem was defeated by the Babylonians, after they were carried off into exile, you look at Judah and Jerusalem, and that's what it looked like. It looked deserted. It looked desolate. It looked destroyed. But now the Lord is saying, I'm going to reverse all that. And in bringing you home, I'm going to make you beautiful. I'm going to make you glorious. I'm going to make it so that people see that you're not deserted, but that I actually take my delight in you and that you are joined to me. And that's going to be evident to the nations. So as special as Zion's wedding day would be for Zion, Isaiah affirmed that the day would be even more special for God. The prophet used the illustration of a bridegroom rejoicing as he saw his bride in the wedding ceremony. So the Lord would rejoice over his people. We see that in verse five. He says, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Builder there is capitalized because it's referring to the Lord. He is the one who's going to build Zion again. And you can imagine the encouraging words that these were to the people of Israel. That, that God is, is remembering you. That God is going to bring you home. He's going to bless you. He's going to restore you, beautify you. But then we see in verse five that the Lord is taking delight in that as well. 
He is rejoicing in what he is doing for this people of Israel. And that's a broad scriptural principle, isn't it? The Lord's glory, the Lord's delight. What the Lord pleasures in doing. And as we see God's plans unfold, whether it be for Israel, or as we think about from a more New Testament perspective, God's grace lavished on the church in Christ, we see that it all has God at the center, doesn't it? It has God at the center. And in Ephesians 1, it talks about that God does everything for the pleasure of his will. He's working out all these things, and it's, it's in the context of salvation in Ephesians 1, of, of God putting us in Christ, of redeeming us by his blood. And he's doing all of this for his own pleasure, for his own glory. And we see that here in Isaiah 62, 5, that as God is doing for Israel, really what they don't deserve. They don't deserve this blessing, but in God showing blessing to them, he's also bringing honor and glory and pleasure to himself. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture of, of God being at the center of all things. So we see the marriage described in verses one through five. And then in verse six to verse nine, he shifts the, the imagery just a little bit to the picture of a watchman. The idea of a watchman is someone who's on a tower, who's on guard, who's, who's watching out over the city. And here the idea of watchmen probably has in mind maybe Israel's prophets or uh, those who were especially praying for Israel. And they're going to now be able to see and celebrate the salvation that the Lord has in store for them. So now it's, it's kind of like instead of the watchmen seeing Babylon's armies approaching, now the watchmen see blessings approaching. They're seeing the glorious salvation of the Lord coming. He refers to their faithfulness in verses 6 and verse 7. Verse 6 and verse 7. Verse 6, he says, I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. And give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. So in verse six, when he's referring to watchmen, he is probably talking about not the watchmen of old, but the watchmen of the new restoration. And in the sense that, that their job will not only be now to like watch out for danger, but now they're going to be continual watchmen on the wall at all times. And so in contrast to watchmen who sounded the alarm only if potential danger threatened, these watchmen are called aloud, uh, call out aloud to the Lord day and night. And so that's probably why the it, this idea of watchmen is probably connected to the Lord's prophets or those who pray on behalf of Israel. They're continually calling out to the Lord. And they are asking the Lord to honor his promises concerning Zion and so they keep on pleading until he does. That's what it means in verse seven. Give him no rest. The idea is of give no rest to the Lord by your continual praying to the Lord for him to fulfill his promises that he's made to Israel. The Reformation Heritage Study Bible draws this point in uh, 
in verse number six and verse number seven, it says, uh, in verse seven, where it says, give him no rest, it refers to the pressing urgency in prayer. And it links it to Luke chapter 11, where the Lord gives the example of the friend at midnight who continues to come and continues to ask. And he receives because he continues to come and ask. Uh, also, First Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Continue to pray and come before the Lord. And that's the imagery here in verse 7 is these watchmen are praying for Israel. They're praying for Jerusalem and they're praying for the Lord to act on behalf of his people. And it really reminds me of the prayer of Daniel in chapter nine, Daniel chapter nine, you see Daniel reading from Jeremiah and there he reads that the, the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And when he sees that that 70 years has just about finished up, he begins praying and he gets down on his knees and they're almost the rest of Daniel nine is a prayer of Daniel pleading with God to do what he's already promised to do. And he's confessing his sins along with the sins of his people. And he prays on, uh, f- for the sake of the name and the glory of the Lord that he would do this for his people and honor his commitments. And it's, this is kind of the imagery here. Lord, you've said this. You, you've said you're going to do this. And we're going to keep praying along those same lines until we see this fulfilled. And so that's the, the, the faithfulness of the watchman. And in verse 8 and 9, we see the Lord's oath that the Lord himself takes a pledge. In verse eight, says, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies. And never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Again, we've, we've wrestled with this before in Isaiah, where we come across promises like this, where the Lord promises that enemies will never triumph over Jerusalem again. And yet when we read through history and even read through the Bible, more in later in biblical history and on into the new Testament, we see that Israel continued to have trouble and they continued to be threatened by enemies, whether it be Antiochus Epiphanes in the say one sixties BC, or whether it be the Romans in AD 70. And, and then the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and the temple has not stood at that place since that day. So how do we wrestle with promises like this that say the Lord's not going to allow enemies to defeat them again? I think here we have to see the the prophetic horizon of Isaiah. And I've I've mentioned this before that that from the perspective of Isaiah, who's, you know, this is 700 BC, and he's looking out, he sees these events unfolding and but from his perspective, he doesn't necessarily see the time intervals or, or the, what all is in between those mountain peaks, if you will. And, and so a lot of times in Isaiah and other prophets too, what we see is the, the immediate future kind of blend and merge into the distant future where we see him talking about restoration from Babylon and, and like in the same verse or next verse, it kind of 
merges, blends into the eternal state of a new heavens, a new earth, where everything is peaceful and glorious forevermore. And I think that's probably what's going on here is he's describing the return from exile. He's, he's talking about the restoration of the Lord, but it's, it's kind of blending into the final ultimate Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth that we read about in Revelation at the end in chapter 21 and 22. And so there is going to be a day in which these words of Isaiah are fully, literally, completely fulfilled and no one will ever bother Jerusalem again. But the full fulfillment of that is not in the immediate days right after Isaiah. There's, there's still more unfolding. And I think that's biblically speaking, biblical theology, looking at the whole, I think that's the best way to handle these passages like that. And so, but the Lord promises what he's going to do for his people. And like the writer of Hebrews says, when the Lord takes an oath in his own name, you can't get any higher than that. Right? Even today, when, you know, someone is going to swear in the, in a court of law, uh, they put their hand in the Bible, right? There, you can't, there's nothing else greater to take an oath by. So when God says something, that's it, right? That's, that's guaranteed. That's locked in. And so he's making this oath on behalf of his people. Yeah, Don? Oh, I see what you're saying. So like, so let's say that the people come home from Babylon to Jerusalem and then during their generation or during their lifetimes, they have no enemies. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I can see where that, you know, might be an interpretation of it. I think probably the, the difficulty I would have would be with the idea of never. Probably it seems to extend, you know, beyond just one generation. And and typically speaking in in the Bible and in the Old Testament, it, it looks at God's people as a collective whole, you know, even through the generations. And so I, I wouldn't tend to want to break it up like that in terms of from one generation to the next. I, I think he's looking at something here probably more ultimate that that maybe hasn't yet been all the way fulfilled yet. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's a really good question. That's a good thought, too. In verse 9, he says, But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Just referring to the blessings that God is going to bring to his people. And then we see in the last few verses of the chapter a description of God's redeemed. God's redeemed. And so here in these last few verses, in language that sounds very much like Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, Isaiah is calling the people to prepare the way for God's coming salvation. So he says in verse 10, pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. And here just the idea is of clearing the path, making things straight, removing any obstacles, and meaning that, that God's going to do whatever needs to be done to bring his people home. And, and the idea of raising a banner 
is the idea of a flag, a symbol. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it's a banner for the nations. It's not just, okay, for those of you who are physical descendants of Abraham, come home. But a banner for the nations. Here is the rallying point. Here is the central point where God is blessing his people. And so, again, pointing to what we see fulfilled in a greater and, and clearer way in the New Testament, that God's purpose is not just to save Jews, but to save the nations and to draw them to himself. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your savior comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Paul quotes from these words in the New Testament, um, talking about uh, the Lord coming again and blessing his people. But here it's, it's describing what the Lord's going to do for Israel. And he's going he's to open up the pathway of salvation for them. And I think not just physically, but he's going to renew their hearts too. And he's going to save them spiritually. God is going to create a, a real, true Israel, not, not just a physical one. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. And so instead of being the, I don't even, I'm losing the right word I want to use here, but the, the neglected, the, the mocked, the, oh, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go to Jerusalem. Now they're going to be the place that God is blessing. And it's going to be the centerpiece. And the nations are going to be drawn to it because of the glory of the Lord and what he's doing for his people. And in verse 12, when it says they will be called the holy people, there again, I think it's not just, not just a label, but that in, in reality, in truth, in the fulfillment of the new covenant, that God is going to create a holy people. People that have been saved, redeemed by him, but then also being transformed from the inside out. Uh, circumcision of the heart, uh, using a biblical metaphor of regeneration, of like in Jeremiah 31, writing God's law in their hearts, or Ezekiel, putting my spirit in them. It, it's going to be God creating a new spiritual people, not just a restored physical or national people. He wants to do a work in them. And out of that, that true Israel, if you will, is where comes Christ and the church and the disciples and, and the Gentiles being grafted in and the, the true people of God. And it's, it's kind of that idea that Paul has in mind in, in Romans 9 when he says, not all who are of Israel are Israel. There's a, there's a broad Israel that are all ethnic descendants of Abraham, but then there's an Israel that can really be called a holy people that are the elect of God transformed by his grace. And, and those are the real, true people of God. And so this is what the Lord's going to do. He is going to redeem and save his people. And that blessing is going to be evident beyond just Jerusalem. It's going to be a spectacle that the nations will wonder at, at what God is doing. That's what the church is supposed to be today. The church of Jesus Christ today in this world is supposed to be such that the world 
looks at it and says, what a great God. What a glorious God. What, what an amazing grace that God is doing in the lives of people. We see that living itself out in the book of Acts, where, where you see the, the Christians in the early churches loving one another, giving to one another, serving together, such that it, the world is seeing that. And, and later on in some of the letters of the New Testament, we see Paul and Peter talk about adorning the gospel, making, making the gospel beautiful and attractive by our own behavior and the way that we live out the gospel. And so just like Israel was to be a center, of, a drawing center of drawing people to the Lord, so the church today is supposed to be a, a shining light that draws people to the Lord. And by his grace, we should strive to do that. But thanks be to God for his undeserved salvation for the people of Israel, but also for us.